Last time on, Have You Seen This Man? John Rufo had conned his way into more than $350 million. That trust, that believability, that was the foundation of this entire scam. They were masters at it. His life sounded carefree. With a growing business, a hotline to Wall Street, and a loving wife, Linda. You know of any nice, normal men for me? Because this gotta go. Hi, Ray. But when he vanished, he left Linda to pick up the pieces. I'm Sunny Hostin. From ABC News, this is Have You Seen This Man? It was New Year's Eve in New York City. People were ready to party like it was 1999, but not Linda Rufo. She lost her home and was bunking with her mother-in-law in a cramped apartment in Queens. As she explained to our senior investigative reporter, Matthew Moss, she entered the new year haunted by the call that her husband would never make. I've had many dreams, the same dream over and over that I am someplace else and I run into him and he's working like with a uniform. It's always like a one-piece jumpsuit. And I go to approach him and he starts to run away and he's, he won't speak with me. And I'm like, no, please, you have to stay. Like, even in my dream, I'm like, I just want to get a hold of him so I could talk to him. And I, he runs away, or he ignores me. Linda had been cast adrift, widowed by a husband who had not died, abandoned by friends, and watched closely by authorities who had confiscated her passport and monitored her phones. She had fallen into a deep and unthinkable limbo, or rather was pushed in by a man she had been with for 26 years, whom she loved, but maybe never really knew. I held on by a string. Yeah, I just was holding on by a string. There was probably no one who wanted to find John Rufo more than Linda, and in the eyes of the U.S. Marshals, there was likely no one who had a better chance of figuring out where he might be. Barry Bowright was one of the first marshals on the case. We always felt that she was being somewhat truthful with us, but we had always said to each other, if she disappears and you know takes off with him and knows a lot more than she's saying, it wouldn't surprise us one bit because you could clearly see from some of the things that she was saying that they were the love of each other's lives. And there's no way that he would do this to her. It was just them. They didn't, he wasn't close with anybody else other than her. We just thought that there's no way that she doesn't know more than what she's saying. Linda did know a lot. She had tantalizing clues about the strange men who would turn up at Rufo's office about evenings he poured over language books, about a curious business card she found in the pocket of a coat he had left behind. But many of those clues, which we'll talk more about, 
emerged later. Initially, she was convinced Rufo would send for her. I thought maybe he will reach out to me. I took a little bit of money out of my bank account to have cash on me in case I had to go. And I told my mother-in-law, who I was living with, Mom, if he should send for me, I'm going to go, but I'll come back. I just have to see him. I want, you know, I will come back somehow. She even started thinking about new identities she would use. I had a little suitcase packed in my room. I was like crazy. I would walk through the cemetery and look at the headstones and see which name I could pick out if I had to change my name. It was crazy. She waited for Rufo's call. And the phone would ring and there'd be nobody on the other end. And I'd hear a little static or some kind of background, funny noise, you know? And I would tell them, the the marshals, could it be? At CCS, Rufo's company, everyone pulled away from her. They assumed she must have been part of the fraud scheme. She felt more and more alone. While everybody is scurrying around, hating him, blaming me, the family worrying about, the children of the parents worrying about their house, nobody could really be very supportive to me because they were in their own boats now sinking in a different way. All Linda could think about was, where was her husband? She cast about for guidance, first from a psychic in Greenwich Village. And he told me that John is going to reach out to me. I have, I'll have a decision that I'll have to make to stay or go with him. And he had no choice but to run. And I said, what do you mean he had no choice? She sunk deeper into despair. I mean, I was with this man 26 years. You know, then I'm homeless and he's gone and my rock is gone and I'm no family. I didn't know, I didn't want to live. You know, I didn't know how I was, I just put myself through therapy. It's, it's hard, like if someone just dies, it's final, they died, natural causes, whatever. But he just, just, I'll see you later. And I never saw him again. One of Linda's only sources of comfort was a former coworker. Andy Lauston was a gentle young salesman who had started working at CCS in 1995. He moved to New York from Arizona and he had more of a relaxed Western vibe. He wasn't implicated in Rufo's scheme, but the U.S. Marshals did question him early on. Well, at that time, it was pretty much I heard an old tape of their initial interview. They asked Andy about Linda. I mean, she was just devastated that he left and uh, hysterical a lot of times. She kind of had this fantasy going on that, uh, you know, maybe he'd send for her. It took a while for her to really start seeing, you know, what he really did. Over time, Linda says her faith in Rufo began to fray. She was thinking more and more about another side to him, a personality trait she had overlooked. I think he was a pathological liar. He did lie a lot. So little things. Like in your regular life? Yeah. From the moment... You know, when we got married or just before, like, he would lie. Like, there was a period where I broke off with him. And he made up this story that he had a rare blood disease and that he could die of it. 
And that's what brought me back to him because huh. I felt terrible because I loved him. So he would lie like through the years, little things. He would just lie about little things. And Did he have any medical issues? or No, his family has a lot of longevity. Rufo felt like someone moving further and further away. Linda confided more in Andy and they began a relationship. She never thought about a divorce. How do you divorce someone you still love but can't find? Then that would change soon after she moved in with Andy. I think I was only living him five months or a few months when this option came to me to adopt this baby. Linda had long thought about adopting, and it was purely by chance that the opportunity arrived at this moment, perhaps when she needed it most. When I had the pre preview, uh, the social worker comes to do a home review prior to adopting. They got to get you approved right. to be adoptive parents. He found out, of course, that John was on Amer you know, America's Most Wanted and I was still married to him. And they wouldn't allow the adoption to go through being married to a fugitive. If he would come back, then... It, he could claim the baby to be his because I'm married to him. You mm -hmm, understand? Mm -hmm. Even though that would never happen, but that was the... So the adoption attorney that I had, he told me he would do the divorce. and he. Linda's lawyer had to post the legal notice of her plans to divorce Rufo in the newspaper. Then they waited to make sure he wouldn't resurface to contest it. And do you remember when it was that you got the final word that that was all squared away? Well, Natalie was born in September of 2002. So it was just prior to that, maybe a month, two months before that. Did it feel like a relief? Did it feel... Uh, to get the divorce? Yeah. It, 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 it was painful because it psychologically it felt like a real end to the relationship, like the final, even though he wasn't here. But it was like that final, maybe partially I didn't want to get divorced. I still wore my wedding band, I mean, even while I dated Andy. Talking to Linda, even 20 years later, you can see all the contradictions. She decided to start a new chapter by marrying Andy. And today she's happy in that marriage and filled with gratitude for her daughter. Yet even after two decades of total absence, Rufo remains an enormous presence in her life. What do you think you would do if John resurfaced? I think about that every day. Yeah. I'd like to go over all the mistakes we made in our marriage and know, is this why this happened? You know, and I'd want to tell him what we should have done, how we should have lived if we were both on the same page and how sad that you know, life could have been so much better without all that. Linda's daughter, who's outgoing and a nursing student, is fiercely protective of her mom. She has a different plan. I would slap him. Hmm. In the early days of 2020, I went to dinner with Linda and Jody Bachman. Jody, as you know, was Rufo's assistant, who had been arrested at the Philip Morris offices and later saw the charges dropped. The women shared a bond. They were connected to the bizarre events that began in the dull cubicles of John Rufo's computer firm. 
They talked about their memories of those odd days leading up to the collapse of Project Star. One thing they mentioned stood out to me. A parade of Russian men, many of whom spoke little English, started showing up at the office. After dinner, I asked Linda about it. So one day, it was around 1987, there were these new salesmen, but I never saw them come in for an interview. They had our business cards, and I was the one that used to order things like that. You know, they're sitting down at the, at the desk, and they have guns on their ankles. So me and Jody got really inquisitive. I'm like, what's going on? And Who are so these guys? One day, I just kind of went into John's office, and I shut the door, and I was like, I need to know what's going on here. And he says, I can't discuss this with you. So, you know, I was like, I'm your wife. I work here. I need to know what's going on. You have to discuss this with me. But you're in the office where you've been coming for now seven years. Seven years, and all of a sudden there are Russian nationals. These men programming at the computers, sitting at the computers, carrying your company business card, as if they worked there. Right? Were they doing actual work, or were they programming? I don't know what they were programming, but they were sitting there. They were very quiet. They just had their heads down, programming all day. You know, they would get paid, I believe, in cash. Rufo, a man she thought she knew well, caught her totally by surprise. He said he was hiring Soviet workers at the request of the FBI. It sounded like those outlandish stories Rufo would tell. You know, like he was doing top-secret work for the government. Claims that seemed unmoored from reality. In fact, I was embarrassed to ask the FBI agent on the case, Jack Mullaney, if Rufo ever had worked for the FBI. It turns out it wasn't the first time he'd heard of this. Mullaney said his colleague had called him the day the agents executed a search warrant at Rufo's offices. And he says, Jack, he says, there's a problem down here. I said, what's the problem? He says, I got a picture of Rufo with the New York SWAT team and the assistant director of the, the FBI. Mulaney told me he considered Rufo a wannabe, or as some agents were calling them, holster sniffers. These were folks who just liked being around authority figures. And for better or worse, there were police and FBI agents who saw them as an opportunity. And they would charge, They would get a fee from these people, and they'd let them go up with the SWAT team and, and shoot guns and everything else. Mullaney said he never pursued that photo of Rufo any further. If there were agents finding creative ways to make money, Mullaney said he didn't want to know anymore. I honestly didn't want to know what was happening with that money. It wasn't part of my case. Nobody was asking me to look for it. And I just, I figured, you know what? I don't want to get involved in this. Because I could see something shady going on there. But none of that explained what Linda saw unfolding inside the offices of her husband's computer business. Not just the strange Russian-speaking employees. Linda says Rufo also started asking her to join him on bizarre outings with Soviet officials from the consulate in New York. We went to a baseball game and um, in a concert at Lincoln Center. And when they would go out, she says her husband taped on a wire. Rufo told Linda to ignore the FBI agents that were trailing them around Yankee Stadium. 
Jody remembered FBI activity ramping up in the office, too. Then started the whole FBI, CIA type of environment where we were constantly being, you know, agents coming in the office. We knew they were agents, and we had people come in to the office, and they gave them different business cards, and they had a fictitious company that they had set up to sell computers. And I remember sitting at the desk, listening to this and saying, this is really exciting. Yeah. This was the late 1980s, the height of the Cold War. Cloak and dagger activity between the U.S. and the Soviets was at a fever pitch. In public, President Reagan was out calling the Soviets the evil empire and pushing an arms race. The Soviet leaders have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is that which will further their cause, which is world revolution. In secret, FBI counterintelligence agents in New York were busy monitoring the churn of Soviet agents cycling through the UN mission. The notion that Rufo, an unassuming computer dealer, could be helping the FBI, that seemed crazy. But not to Linda. She began accepting it all as truth. She became convinced her husband was a patriot, not a criminal. After the arrest, Linda even sent a letter to the judge handling the case. She asked him to factor his past connections to the FBI into his deliberations. She wrote, As bizarre as it may sound, my husband's involvement in Project Star was perpetrated by his role as an FBI informant. Was all this just more typical Rufo? A man divorced from the truth and addicted to lies? Maybe, but then I drove to Richmond to pull out the stacks of court files from Rufo's case. As I thumbed through them, I was surprised to find several docket entries missing. They were marked sealed. I reached out to Rufo's lawyer for an explanation. He agreed to see me at his New York office. Okay, Sir, how are you? Very well. Nice to meet you. Nice. Judd Burstein sat by a window overlooking Columbus Circle, the table in his office piled high with papers and legal pads. He said he initially thought Rufo would be tough to defend. To say the least, it was, a, uh, it was one of those cases where, at first blush, it was a problematic case, but then I started to develop a defense, which... Um, you know, the case was problematic because the the story was so insane. So what about the insanity of the scheme made you think that you had a, a defense there? Well, the defense was that this was a guy who actually had a, a covert relationship with the government. What was the nature of his work for the government? Uh, he was, I, I wouldn't say he was undercover, but what he was, as I'm trying to recall, um, it, Russians would come in and he was theoretically, supposedly providing computer stuff to the, to the Russians and... No kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, it was sort of the real deal and... His view, his argument was, wait a minute, 
I thought that this was real. It was consistent with the kind of work I do. The difficulty was is that it seemed, you know, really far-fetched. And then you just have to raise a reasonable doubt. And there was enough crazy stuff with him in terms of actually having done this classified work. Right. That maybe he did think. Maybe he maybe he did, and the jury might believe him. You know, and he swore up and down that he that, you know, that's what it was. But what exactly was Rufo doing for the FBI? Burstein said he couldn't tell me more. The files were sealed under something called the Classified Information Procedures Act, or SEPA, which meant it was all too sensitive to talk about. A lot of that was classified. Yeah, a lot of that was classified. On the other hand, you can assume that as a responsible lawyer, if there was stuff in there that I thought really contradicted the the underlying defense, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have gone forward with it. So, you know... Certainly, But it's been two decades since Burstein defended Rufo, and even longer since the Cold War ended. Did this stuff really need to stay secret all these years later? And what could John Rufo have been doing that needed a top-secret clearance just to talk about? There had to be a way to learn more. Almost in passing, I asked Burstein if he had any of his unclassified files, and he asked his assistant to check. I certainly don't keep records that are 23 years. Although, let me check. Hey, Victor? Yes? Can you see if by any bizarre chance in city, wherever our outside storage is, that we have anything for John Rufo? This would turn out to be a crucial request, but it would take more than a year for me to learn why. There was another related detail from those days that Linda remembered. It was a name. It came to her while we were eating dinner in a crowded restaurant. The name of an FBI agent she believed had worked with her husband back in the days before his arrest. Earl Pitts. Do you remember Earl Pitts? No. If you look up Earl Pitts, he got sent to jail. He might still be in jail. Earl Pitts. I didn't recognize the name, so I checked the ABC archives. He had been an FBI agent, stationed in New York City in the mid-1990s. And right around the time John Rufo was arrested, Earl Pitts was also in the news. We're announcing today the arrest of FBI Supervisory Special Agent Earl Pitts for conspiracy to commit espionage, attempted espionage, and other offenses. It is alleged that Pitt spied for Russian intelligence and later gave classified material... One thing was becoming increasingly clear. John Rufo was not your typical fugitive. In the years before his arrest, John Rufo was taking Soviet officials to New York Yankees games. But after he fled, could this affinity for baseball be his undoing? After the break. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. 
you'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. pitch and Mookie drills this one to left field and deep. This one is gone. It was late in the summer of 2016 when a call came in to the U.S. Marshals tip line. A relative of John Rufo was watching the L.A. Dodgers play the Boston Red Sox when he thought he spotted a familiar face and he reached out to the U.S. Marshals. We got a tip on our like Bain Marshal Service tip line. And it originally went to the duty officer, then it trickled down to lead investigator, which it wasn't myself at the time, but I was still in the office, so I knew what was going on. And the gist of the tip was um, that John Rufo was at the Red Sox and Dodgers game on August 5th, and he was sitting somewhere behind home plate. There have been plenty of tips about Rufo over the years, but Danielle Shimchik says this was different. There he was the possible suspect on the TV screen. Every time the camera zeroed in on a batter, U.S. Marshals could pause the tape and study the man sitting just over the umpire's shoulder, four rows behind the safety screen and a bit to the left, a balding man with a mustache in a blue Dodger shirt munching on a hot dog. How unusual is it? I mean, normally when you have a tip, you're sort of completely reliant on the observation of the tipster. But this is a little different, right? Because you have something you can actually look at. This was the first one that Chris and I have seen like, oh, wow, this this could potentially be him. And it looks like him. It was was exciting for for all of us, because I remember talking to the lead deputy at the time who had the case. You know, we were all excited, like, oh, this this is a good possibility. This is the. Best tip we've had in a really long time. The tip would be routed to the L.A. office and would land on the desk of Deputy Marshal Pat Valdenor, a veteran fugitive investigator with a quick wit and easy manner. By this point, Rufo had been designated one of the agency's top 15 most wanted. So these kinds of requests are not taken lightly. So tell us a little bit about that. Describe for people who don't understand what it means to get a top 15 case. Uh, So on a top 15 case, you pretty much put aside all the cases that you're working at that particular time and you focus on this case. At this point, I had to drop all the cases that I was doing. I was a team leader at the time. As he would discover though, figuring out the identity of the person seated in section I, row double E, seat 10 at Dodger Stadium, is not as easy as it sounds. And it would become, perhaps, the most frustrating lead of the 20-year manhunt. For U.S. Marshals, 
Tracking down tips takes patience and diligence, and every effort can take a deputy on a roller coaster of emotions. One of the first tips of the Rufo case arrived in the middle of the night. Deputy Barry Bowright remembers when his phone rang. On the other end of the line was Linda Rufo. And she's like, Barry, it's Linda. I know where John is. I vaguely remember being like half asleep and I'm trying to, you know, get my wits about me. And um, I'm like, okay, Linda. And I grab a piece of paper and I'm starting to write stuff. I'm like, and she's telling me all this stuff. And, you know, she's, she's on an island somewhere. He's, you know, I don't remember exactly the details of it, um, but we're going through all this and we're going through all this and I'm writing everything down. And I say, Linda, how do you, now how do you know all this? How'd you find this out? She's like, a psychic told me. I'm like, a psychic? <laughs> and I'm just like... With so much writing on the case, Barry decided he had to follow up on the lead. He wondered whether the psychic might have picked up on cues from Linda that may have actually been meaningful. Psychics have had a long and largely checkered history of inserting themselves into high-profile criminal investigations. The woman who spoke with Linda was no different. Kathleen Ray spoke with a sense of assurance that she could solve criminal mysteries. She wrote books about psychic powers and frequently turned up on TV to talk about unsolved cases. All that attention led to an ABC News 2020 expose about the way psychics preyed on victims of crime. What if someone you love disappeared and police told you they didn't have a clue? Would you then turn to a psychic? Kathy the correspondent at the time, John Stossel, grilled her about her claim that she could lead authorities to the body of a missing woman. She was very confident that she knew where Christine's body was. And it's about 30 minutes or 30 miles from here. But that could be anywhere. Well, that's true. So they have Ray tried to defend her work. But on close inspection, her signals to the spirits seemed to have some static. Ray also said this police sketch was not the murderer. You said the sketch is no good. This isn't That's him. That's right. Mm -hmm. But it was he. It wasn't at all him. But aren't these pictures pretty close? If you think so. At the time, with no other leads to go on, Barry thought, what harm could it do to reach out to her? Oddly enough, I mean, she, if you look her up online, I mean, she's solved some cases. So we're like, can, can't hurt anything, you know? And um, so that's why we, and we followed up with it. And because we want to, I mean, when you, when you talk about that she'd solve cases, I don't want to belittle the thought of something supernatural at play. Or, right, right, right. Um, is that how you thought of her, or, or could she be somebody who's just very perceptive in reading the available could information? Could be, yeah, yeah. Was it interesting to you that she had spoken to Linda? I don't think we were surprised that Linda reached out to a psychic. I think Linda was trying to figure out, all right, what had happened? What is going on? Where's John? I need to find John. Um, and she was trying everything that she could. Here's a bit of the recording Barry made of his conversation with the psychic. Now, I feel like he has a beard, uh, not just a mustache. 
So he's changed his looks. And I feel like he's lost weight, so you're looking for a more slim guy than that was, a smaller guy than he was. I feel like, uh, see, I'll take him down there. See, he planned this. He had this, he had, he has another name. He has his, um, his, uh, did you look to see? Because I feel like he has his, um, his passport is under another name. Ray had mentioned to Barry that Rufo was on an island. She said it was shaped like a crescent, and that was the key to finding Rufo. But where exactly was it? That she couldn't say. Barry laughs now, thinking about it. At that time, it was our best lead, too. <laughs> Amazingly, <laughs> we were joking about it, like, oh, my God, can you believe our best lead is a psychic? Um, because everything else was just, it was just, you know, we were striking out everywhere. We weren't really coming up with a whole lot. There was another intriguing tip in the Rufo case. It started with a program to link up marshals with people in the nation's financial sector, especially those involved in handling money transfers. Uh, I had sent out a lead, basically a wanted poster with information on John Rufo um, through the International Bankers Association that went to every bank uh, in the country, in some overseas banks. And that's when we got the call about the bank in Duncan, Oklahoma, that this guy had been in there and this person thought it was John Rufo. He never said the bank teller said a man came in looking to move a large amount of money out of the country. He was going to give them the wiring information and all that. After that person had been into the bank, this alert went out and the, and the banker saw the picture of Rufo and said, hey, I think that guy that was in here, I think that was John Rufo. The teller held on to the man's address in Oklahoma. So Barry and his partner Rob flew out to check on the lead. We sat up, you know, we followed him and he went into this store and Rob and I went into the store and we both walked into the store and, and you know, listen to the guy talk and and um, and then we confronted him afterwards and we're like this isn't this isn't him and we started talking the guy ended up being from Detroit and told us about his background and we verified it all we checked it all out there were other tips that came in some easily dispensed with like a prison snitch who swore he knew Rufo's whereabouts he was lying and a man in Florida, who was just craving attention. But some leads seemed more tantalizing, like a private investigator working for the banks who told the marshals he had placed Rufo at a casino in the Dominican Republic, apparently flanked by two sex workers. They sent deputies after that lead, but found instead a Canadian man whose credentials checked out. High fly ball down the left field line. Way, way back there into the corner, and that ball is gone. But that guy eating the hot dog at the Dodger game, that one was different. It took only one look at the footage to see that this man did very much resemble Rufo. But who was he? Deputy Pat Valdenor walked me through the steps he took to try and unwind the mystery. So I called the tipster, and uh, the tipster is a uh, family member. So someone who would not only be familiar with the case, but very familiar with how John looks. 
not someone just looking at a picture and comparing it with another picture, but someone who spent time with John. Did he say maybe this was John Rufo, or how certain was this person who was watching the, the ball game? He was pretty certain. At the same time, Pat sent the video footage to the U.S. Marshals' facial recognition team to study it against images they already had of the fugitive. So while I'm doing my legwork, that's also happening at the same time. So that's uh, the next move is to go to Dodger Stadium and talk to the security, talk to security staff and uh, figure out a way to find the exact seat. And I spoke with one of the managers there and uh, we walked down the, the field and uh, just- by He met with Michelle Derringer. She works full time for the baseball club, solving all sorts of risk and security issues. I called her to ask about the day the marshals reached out. So wh- where do you start with something like that? They have this image. They say, uh, we, we think this could be our guy. We've been looking for him for years. And here's this guy sitting in a seat behind home plate at the Dodger game. Right. So we're able to track that exact seat location. And then what do you do next? So normally you would take that seat as well as other seats adjoining um, on each side, maybe in front or, or in back. But usually it's if you look at, there's, I believe, four people in that area that were all talking to one another or seem to have been together. Mm-hmm. So we will then take, a, if we can, usually we're able to track back and identify who purchased those tickets. Um, if they were still- Derringer provided the marshals with a name, the president of a large equipment company based in L.A. who had bought seats for more than 100 games each season. And not just any seats, these seats. I now have the information of who bought the ticket. He's got company, he's got money, um, but does he know John Rufo? Does he know that John Rufo's a fugitive? So I can't just approach him and say, hey, you bought these tickets, who's this guy? What stops you from just immediately going to him? What's the, what's the risk? Well, the risk is if, if he has a close relationship with Rufo and he tips him off. You know, you got to slow down sometimes and take a breath and say, okay, this person bought the ticket, and I've got to do my background on who this person is. Pat pulled together a team to conduct surveillance on the man's house. They waited, and they watched. This was a rich person. It was in a rich neighborhood. It's a big house. You can easily have a guest room. So we do surveillance, um, talk to some neighbors, make sure that they have not seen uh, uh, someone resembling John John Rufo, we have wanted posters on the case. Once he was comfortable that the man had no ties to Rufo, he knocked on the door. And this is where things started getting tricky. The man had sold some of his tickets and given away others to his best customers. Pat had him look back through his calendar. It looked like the seats went to a top client, the owner of an electrical company. So Pat branched out his efforts again only this owner had done the same thing, given his tickets away. So this case is is uh, is snowballing a little bit. You're you've now got a bunch of names to chase. What do you do? How do you how do you tackle that? Um, you do it one at a time. <laughs> you just start uh, going after this uh, this individuals, doing your background, getting in front of them, and they start. You start getting information back. Uh, one of them is, "Hey, I only went to one game." and wasn't that game. Another uh, person is, I couldn't go, so I gave the ticket to someone else. Now, the person ended up giving some of the tickets back to the equipment owner 
the person who gave it to him because he just did not have time. Another person said that uh, I went to the game, but uh, again, that's that's not the game. So you start eliminating uh, people. And then there's also people that I- Who was in that seat? That seemingly simple question was mushrooming into a chain reaction event. Pat hit pause. He asked the initial owner, make a list of everyone he gave tickets to that season. So he comes up with that list. And as I'm interviewing these persons, the ones that said, I gave the ticket to someone else, that's another list. The number of possible ticket holders kept growing. Soon, Pat neared the end of his list. But just as he did, he heard back from the agency's facial recognition team. Facial recognition technology isn't exactly as it appears on popular TV shows, with computers sifting through images from surveillance cameras and landing on a match. In this case, the suspect had aged 20 years since his last photo, so the chances of finding a perfect match were slim. Pat told me the results were disappointing. He just came back as inconclusive and it never found me a match. Of course, Pat would love to have been the one to crack this case. I would like to uh, know who was in this seat, him or not. If it's not him, uh, obviously John Roof was still not caught, but at least I would know who was in that seat. Because at the end of the day, that was that's a major thing for me to find out who's in this seat. Can you scratch the Dodgers lead off the list of possibilities? No, no. Until I can identify who was sitting on that seat, that lead is, to me, still a lead. It's not, I, I can't scratch that off. If there was a low point in the manhunt for John Rufo, this may have been it. Scratching off Dodger Game Man from the list of leads was one thing. But Chris and Danielle were left with an outcome no deputy U.S. Marshal wants. Uncertainty. The best lead they had to finding Rufo was worse than eliminated. It remained unresolved. So one of the things that seems to be a hallmark of all of these cases is like, you have a tantalizing lead, you spend a lot of time on it, you chase it all the way to the end, and then you take the fingerprint or you you got that final piece of information and it's not at all, it's not useful. Yeah. How do you like emotionally handle the burden of that, because that's got to be pretty frustrating over yeah. time. I mean, you've been I at say, this what, three, it's been like two and a half years. Yeah, now. we're kind of used to it. I mean, the ones that are the worst are when you have no resolution. That's what bothers me is that you just don't know, is that him or not? The Dodgers footage, is that him? Is that Rufo or is it not? How do we even figure it out if, if it is him? That Those are the ones that really bother me because we could have had it. Since tips are not resolving the case, Chris and Danielle decide to refocus their energy on something else, his money. What they find sends them towards a new lead. That is the address that they're at. Oh, And raises new questions. What, what do you sue? You're suing a ghost. And Linda makes an unexpected discovery. I have the prison tapes. Oh, you do? Next time on Have You Seen This Man?
If you have any information that can help the U.S. Marshals find this man, call 1-877-WANTED-2. That's 1-877-926-8332. Or send a tip from your phone through the U.S. Marshal app called USMS Tips. That's USMS Tips. And if you haven't already, follow this podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Let us know what you think with a rating and review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News Investigative Unit. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Field production by Alex Hosenball. Additional reporting by Kate Holland. Produced by Susie Liu and Kate Holland. Mixing and mastering by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Aaron Ferrer, Louis Millman, Leighton Schneider, Aaron Katursky, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohen, Chris Vlasto, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley, Matthew Mosk, and Liz Alessi are executive producers. I'm Sunny Hostin.